Hello and welcome to another episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm your host and uh, joined now as always with my blue collar badass of a co-host, Matt. How's it going, man? How's Michigan? Michigan's good, man. We got a little warm up this week, so the uh, the maple sap is flowing rapidly. We are we are busy cooking down syrup as we speak, so things are good. Yeah, you got to wait another twelve days to to eat that though. Yeah, I, I won't be having that anytime soon. I'm I'm trying to finish up phase one first, but we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> and guys, uh, I don't have like a the greatest intro for this guy. James Hilligus, if you are in construction whatsoever, you know of him. Uh, we're going to go beyond BIM. He is the man when it comes to prefab, BIM, all that kind of stuff, which is uh, kind of the world that I live in these days. But uh, James, welcome to the show. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it, man. There's there's so many ways to to start this off, right? Like, I think probably one of the best places to to start. So we, we were talking about 75 Heart and something that's not glamorous, right? <laughs> Before we, we went live here. But to to talk about, you know, the you know, construction in and of itself, right, isn't necessarily the most glamorous of industries, most glamorous of professions. There's a lot of very, very cool aspects that we talk about a lot in here. Uh, but maybe just give a little bit of um, background one on like 75 hard because we talk about that on here quite a bit. But just your experience with it first, I think, is, is probably a good place to start. Yeah. So I did 75 hard last year. Uh, shortly after I moved to Georgia, I started like the week before Memorial Day and finished just towards the end of August. And I want to kind of show a couple of things. One is I just, we waste a lot of time. Me personally, I, I mean, because when you have to do 75 hard, you, you can get a lot of things done pretty early. Like I got the early workout was always first thing in the morning. The progress photo eventually after I missed it a couple of times, kind of set up a system for like, as soon as I'm done with the workout, I'm going to get this done. I would do the reading before I went to the gym. And then it was just a matter of water. And that second workout, and the second workout would always be like, for me, it was always the hardest to not necessarily get in, but it was always typically at night and it was dark and, you know, doing whatever. Um, but just the biggest thing was just how much time we wasted or I wasted because, you know, I still, towards the end of the program, I was still getting the power list done. And then, you know, obviously keeping up with doing 75 hard, but biggest thing was the time management, which I think is a huge thing in construction because I think a lot of things are just poorly ran. Meetings are pointless or just not to the point that we kind of like beat around the bush. Like, I mean, a standard project meeting for construction is like, we talk about the same five issues five weeks in a row and then nothing ever happens or we talk about five topics and the number one answer to all those topics is I got to check on that. And then we check on it for the next five weeks and it's the same thing. So biggest thing is it starts to, you start to uh, not put up with a lot of crap. Cause you're like, dude, I gotta get, <laughs> I get stuff done. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And, and I mentioned I'm doing phase one. So we take 75 hards tasks and then you add three more critical tasks for the day. You add a, a, bastard cold shower every day and you add some some visualization stuff and you're right you nailed it you you stop putting up with the bullshit because you just don't have time in the day and and you have enough time to do all this and to pack it in and, and get done what you need to get done but if you're messing around in, in meetings or on worthless phone calls or playing on facebook you're gonna be starting over real soon and, and nobody wants to do that because it as a program itself it's not fun you know but but you touched on meetings. I think meetings have gone construction wise. I'm a, I'm a contractor. You know, we're all kind of doing the remote thing still. I'm in my, my new home office here. And for a while, the Zoom meetings, when we first kind of kicked them off, they were more efficient, it seemed, because they were quick, because people were still uncomfortable. But now we've sunk right back into where we were when we sat in front of each other. Everybody's used to it. And these meetings will drone on for you know, a, a construction weekly meeting that goes for two hours is about an hour and, and a half too much, at least. Um, I, I don't know how we fix it, but it's it's a huge time suck. Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is a couple of things like for like the BIM meetings, like most BIM people are not necessarily like A type personalities. I mean, I'm generalizing. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but 
They're not like the construction superintendent. Like you kind of have like the two dichotomies. So you have like one construction superintendent, the old guy that everybody always talks about. That's like just up people, down people's throats, and like we need to get this done. We need to get this done. Then you have like the BIM nerds, and I am one, so I really don't care. And then they're like, "Oh, it's okay. You know, we can kind of, you know, maybe we'll get it done. Maybe next week. Oh, you didn't get it done this week. Oh, it's okay." And it's like we drone on for hours and hours and hours. So you kind of need a dichotomy of the two. And then another thing is like. Most people become project managers simply because of a degree or some form of piece of paper. And they don't teach you anything of like real value in college. So no one's really taught any, any leadership principles or put in any situations where like you have to say no, you have to, you know, call people out and not being like, you don't be an ass about it. But, you know, I mean, Jordan wasn't exactly liked when, by his teammates, but they all liked winning. So you mean you have to be able to call people out on what needs to be said. And, you know, obviously when you're younger, it's a little bit harder because you don't know as much. And the construction is a, a huge experience-based industry. You know, it's hard to know what you don't know. And unless you've either seen somebody mess it up or mess it up yourself or had someone tell you what to look for, you really just don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. This is a, this is a great, great topic because there's, there's two sides of this, right? There's the the side of people coming out of school and they don't know anything, which I'll agree to, right? I've got the degrees and I didn't <laughs> pick up most of the stuff that I I know from school, right? Uh, but it put me in positions that opened doors to put me in the seat to move forward. And then it's a lot of learning, reading books, doing the power list, doing things that make you uncomfortable outside of that. But the other thing that I've experienced and seen it really throughout the industry, right? My experience is on the design side and there's no real training programs, right? It's follow this guy around <laughs> and, and learn this, right? And this is what historically the union has been great at is here's a plan, here's how you progress, right? From a apprentice to a you know master of whatever, right? Electrician, plumber, and you go all the way through, follow this guy, take these exams that test your actual knowledge of things that you should know on the job site. And, you know, that's a great program to have a level of mastery of your, your skill, your trade. But for a lot of construction, right, for project management, you could say that like the PMP has that. But if you've ever taken like the PMP exam, they don't test your actual level of like running a meeting. It's, can you, do you understand all these phrases and words and terminologies, not can you actually run an effective meeting? So there's a lot of training lack throughout the industry on like, this is how we run meetings. This is, have you ever heard of Robert's rules of order, right? <laughs> this is how you run a meeting. This is A to B, do we have a quorum? You know, are we doing anything on quorums? Majority rule or is this a dictatorship, right? <laughs> what this person says goes and that's it. But we sometimes rule by majority not and we need to have those decision thresholds throughout a project which are never established. No one's ever talked about them. And I think it, it brings up just a great point in, in the continuing education that needs to go on for everybody through the industry, right? Whether in getting that seat coming out of school and being a PM, that's great that you were able to secure that position. But there also needs to be a training program for you to understand what the hell you actually need to do to get a project <laughs> from start to finish. I mean, 100%. I don't think Personally, I don't think I've gone through college. I have a graduate degree and I told him on the way out. I said, this is a joke. And I had the same professor for six years, not for the same class, but he taught like more freshman level stuff and then on the way up through into grad school. And I told him, I was like, this is a joke. This is a complete joke. And there needs to be something that's a mix between what the trades do with vocational school and what college does. Because college now it's like we have the internet. Everything is online. Like, and you're, you're, everything's in theory and it's pretty easy to solve things in theory when it's like, okay, you have this cute little circuit. You have one load here and one load here. You need to balance out like a teeter totter, but in reality, that's not how any of it works. So it needs to be something and you learn best with hands-on by actually doing something. So you need to understand the concepts of whatever the case might be, but then learn through actual experience and just figuring it out. And like, instead of like homework problems or textbooks, it's gotta be like a physical project. Like maybe it's not, okay, we're going to design, you know, the Eiffel Tower, but maybe they give you 50% of it solved and you have to figure out the other 50% or whatever the case might be. 
but I just don't think college is designed to serve people anymore. To be completely honest, I'm kind of pretty jaded <laughs> towards it. <laughs> I, I would tend to agree with you. I mean, I think it's designed to to rake in a whole lot of cash and create a whole lot of debt. Um, it's got its place, right? There are definitely professions where I don't want my brain surgeon coming <laughs> out and telling me that he's, you know, he's spent two years in the field cutting up heads and I watched YouTube. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but but for a lot of stuff, you know, you can get that specialized training that you get in that you should get in school. You can get it after the fact. You know, go and, and hang your feet over the fire and learn what you want to do or figure it out for that matter. You can learn in the field or, or learn in the office, whatever you're doing. And then then you can go back and get specialized degree, specialized training for whatever you want to focus in. That that seems to make a little a little more sense in my mind anyways. But, you know, I, I we don't have to get into it, but I did the school thing. I have a bachelor's degree. Do I use it? No. You know, I, I'm in construction. I paid a lot of money for it. I've got three boys. My, my oldest is going to be in high school next year. So this is a big topic going around our house right now. And, you know, what, what the hell are you going to do? And, you know, we have different conversations. He's, he's mentioned trade school because he listens to this show. And he's like, well, Dad, you're always talking about trade school and Vogue Tech. And I said, do it. What, what, you know, what do you want to do? Let's, let's find what you're interested in. And granted, he's, you know, he's not even 14 yet, so it's hard to gauge. But, you know, the, the machine of college is is kind of getting to the expiration date, I think. No, I, I agree. I think one of the, my favorite arguments is like, you you would rather pick a person with passion than a person with a piece of paper. Like if someone really likes something like art history or some degree that they have to get, would you rather hire the guy that like just liked art history and spent all his time YouTubing it and Googling it and trying to learn on, I mean, I don't know, no crap about art, but Picasso and, you know, um, Michael, Ant I, don't, I don't know, but would you rather have the guy, that guy as a curator of your museum who just knew everything was, was passionate and outwardly passionate and spoke about it with passion and people wanted to like listen to him talk because he was such a good tour guide uh, giver of the museum? Or would you rather have someone just like, yeah, I got a piece of paper, now I'm six figures in debt and I have to be here because, you know, essentially it's a, a weight tied around you until you get paid off, if you ever get paid off. And it's pretty, pretty obvious. I mean, look at it. It's the same thing with like Tom Brady. Like, would you rather have the first round pick? Who's like highly touted, or do they have the guys who won seven Super Bowls? Look, I'm not a Michigan fan, but I respect the guy for winning seven Super Bowls. And he's not number one pick, but he had passion to learn the game. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with college, where they have the guy that has a piece of paper who's like highly touted, you know, valedictorian, or the guy that's passionate about it and willing to figure out whatever needs done to get it done. Yeah. Passion, heart, and willingness to learn. That's you, you can't grow that got to have it inside yeah which so i'm gonna i'm gonna transition topics a little bit here because we we definitely hit on this you know every episode i think it's worth mentioning and everybody brings a a slightly different viewpoint to the whole um point on college and and trades and in construction in general but the the kind of pivot that i want to make here is to really productivity. So we, we started off talking about meetings and how unproductive um, a lot of this becomes. And, um, you know, recently, James, you've had some some posts and talked about productivity and, and things like that. I'd like you to give your, your take on uh, productivity and construction. I've got a few points that just recently it's been grinding on me um, on how people approach productivity and construction and really tech in general uh, for it. Uh, to they want the flashy thing <laughs> to your point, not things that actually do the work, which is um, you know just a, a sore spot for me. But if you want to give your your take on uh, tech productivity, all that kind of stuff, yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. One is I mean just using technology for the sake of using it. If you don't have a good process for it, which I get, it, it gets dull because people always like process, process, process. But if you suck at driving a Prius. Giving you a Porsche is not going to make you any better driver. It's probably going to make you crash faster. So um, when it comes to technology, I, I don't think it's it's a tool at the end of the day, just like anything else. So it's how you use it, not necessarily what it is. And I think for one thing, like we get bad with nobody can focus. Like nobody can sit down and truly focus on a problem and try and you know, figure it out. 
And construction is complicated. The, the best way I like to explain to people is we're going to stand here. This is an empty field. And in this, in two years or three years or one year, there's going to be a building here that defies gravity, uh, defies mother nature, uh, provides in the case of a hospital, life-saving systems, oxygen, all the other ones that go in there, medical gas. It's going to keep the building falling down in fire. And all this is going to happen in 3D space. And we have to figure out how to make it all not run into each other. Then it's not, it's not that simple and straightforward. So no one can get a chance to focus because emails are open. You know, phones are always open. There's a bajillion apps <clears throat> that send notifications playing. All of them send notifications. I'm not even going to name them because they all do it. And they all say, oh, we'll get rid of email. But they email you notifications. So you can have like, and especially if you're a sub and you have like multiple GC, excuse me, multiple projects with multiple GCs and some use playing grid and some are on Procore and some are in Bluebeam and we get notifications from all of them and you never get a chance to focus. So I've, I found an author named, I could be butchering his last name, but Stephen Kotler, he's written a lot of books on like flow and the art of human performance and like how to get, you know, the best out of yourself. I mean, one of the things I, <clears throat> this is the first week doing it is I spoke with our senior leadership and I was like, hey, <clears throat> I get a lot more modeling done when it's quiet so if I can start the first like two or three hours of the day at home and then I'll come into the office, I'll have my phone in case there's like some crazy production issue that I need to come in for because, you know, it happens. And if I need to shift that time around to where, you know, maybe I leave early and go home and do modeling, uh, then we can do that just for whatever works for production. Uh, but if I can get like two or three hours a day of just like silence, like no emails open, my phone is off, just focus, the output is ridiculous because you're focused on it. And, if you're getting you know, noise in the office or people coming in and asking you things and everything's always an emergency, you can't get anything done. And then you look at the end of the day and you're like, damn, I didn't do anything. And so, you know, it's kind of one of those things. And all the other apps are designed to be addictive. I mean, all of the apps are. That's why like you look on LinkedIn and you get a notification, you're get a little excited. You're like, oh yeah, gotta like. And they're all designed to be addictive. I mean, they're specifically designed to be addictive. So you have to control that. Otherwise you're not going to get anything done in the day. Yeah. They all, they all hit that, that little dopamine hit and, and it started with outlook, right? Everybody points at face crook and, and all the other ones, but I think outlook started it, right? Cause all of a sudden you have this, this little ding, little ding, a little ding, and there's, there's numbers racking up. So they, they, they channel you to focus on that. And I, I'm with you. I don't do it nearly often enough, but you know, when I'm working on estimates or, or proposals, I will try and do what you just said and I'll shut my email off completely. I'll shut my phone off. I'll lock the doors. And when I can actually force myself to do it, it's fantastic. You get so much more done. You're so much more productive, but the second it all comes back on, it's, it's right back into the chaos. So in uh, productivity and like Stephen Collar stuff, uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport's another good book to to read in this. When you when you're in a flow state or in a deep work state where you don't have any distractions, you're actually focused on the thing that you're doing. And in that moment, the productivity rates are like 10x what you normally would be. It, it's something insane. So if you're and most people get like 15 minutes of flow like a week. It's it's something extremely small if that if they're lucky to get into like a peak flow state for 15 minutes, like the, the time frames, and I'm probably butchering like what it actually is, but it, it's something abysmally small. So if you're able to get two, three, four hours a week, it's like a, it's a huge productivity bump, right? It's basically that four hours of flow can cover what most people do in 40. Now, if you stack that to where you're getting two or three days a week now, right? you're doing a month's worth of work <laughs> for most people in those same two to three days. And then, but this is also the, the shift that most people have to make is, and it's a hard one to make, is from I'm getting paid to be here to I'm getting paid to produce results. And those are two very different. And I mean, the gap is very wide <laughs> on those two different mindsets, right? I'm getting paid to be here versus paid to produce results. And the more that you can shift to I'm paid to produce results, not immediately, this is not instant gratification. This is not, uh, you know, leveling up in a game, but it is. 
over time, you will be paid more for what you do because you're able to produce results. You're going to be wanted on teams, but it, it's a shift most people have to make from a, I'm paid to be here and sit in the office, regardless of what I do, to I'm here to produce results. So if I can jump in, James, I, I spent some time on your LinkedIn uh, yesterday and today just kind of doing some prep. You do a whole lot of stuff, man. <laughs> can you, uh, for those of us that are not as familiar with you as, as some, can you kind of give me a the cursory overview of what you're doing these days? Because you got a big list on your on your resume there, man. Yeah, so I guess best way to do it, so I like, like we talked about with the college thing, I got a you know graduate degree in engineering and then engineer was kind of, I just didn't like it. I didn't like the office space. So I, I worked through grad school as an engineer and just went back to construction. Um, and then I worked as a PE and superintendent was the first job out of school. And I honestly shouldn't have been in the superintendent role, but I learned a lot of stuff the hard way. And I learned really good about how to get people's trust. Because when I first came in, even one of the glazers at the end of the job, one way, I was like, dude, when you first got on this job site, I thought you were an asshole. <laughs> and I was like, and the guy was, I mean, I know, he probably was right. I mean, he was had experience that I didn't have. He was 40. I was 24 at the time. So like, what did I know? And it was a, it was a huge job. It was a $170 million hospital in Akron, Ohio. I mean, it's not, that's a lot of money in Akron, Ohio. This isn't LA. This isn't Las Vegas or some other major city. I mean, it's Akron. Um, so worked through the field and that's kind of the way I got in technology and it's kind of a roundabout way which I guess will streamline some of the conversation. I wasn't a tech kid. I didn't get a computer science degree and I really didn't do anything with technology growing up. But the way I saw it was when I worked as an engineer, it was mid 2015 ish and drones kind of were starting to become relatively popular at the time when DJI still had a huge problem with drones flying away. I think they were on the Mavic one or two maybe at the time. And I was doing bridge inspections for Ohio Turnpike. And I remember making these schematic sketches of you know, what the issues were. And I just like, this is stupid. This doesn't seem very valuable. I'm kind of estimating at really where things are. And I Googled do drones and bridge inspections, some phrase like that. And I found this report. It was done by Collins engineers out of Minnesota. And they did a study of using drones for bridge inspections. This was a couple of years after they had that crazy collapse in Minneapolis, I think it was over the river. Yeah. So they, they, Minnesota, I think it was the Minnesota Department of Transportation, this engineering firm located in Minnesota, and then uh, a drone company out of uh, Colorado Springs. I read the report. It was 300 pages, 350, something like that. And I called the guy who kind of led the drone flight stuff. His name was Kevin. He was a former Royal Air Force pilot for Great Britain. And because at the time, the only people really flying drones were either people, A, illegally, because there was no rules at the time. So I guess it wasn't really illegal if there was no rules or um, you had to have like a commercial pilot's license. And most of the commercial pilots were obviously being commercial pilots. And so the other guys doing it were basically, you know, former military, Air Force, Royal Air Force, whatever the case might be. And I ended up working for these guys like remote, like doing inspections with drones. And I was still in college at the time. Like I was, we were testing all the software and all the stuff because nothing existed, nothing existed like what it is now. And we were testing software. They would send me Dropbox files of photos, still have a lot of them. And we just kind of worked through the process. And before I knew it, I was like talking to CEOs and presidents within the Cleveland, Akron area of Ohio about drones and bird inspections. And I mean, I was still 20, 20, 20, 21, maybe. I didn't think I even had a, my undergrad yet. And I was like, well, this is kind of, you know, kind of interesting. You know, they're obviously well more seasoned than I am. And they're asking me these questions and I was going into their board meetings and presenting. So I kind of picked it up and always kept that in my back pocket as like, I'll just use technology as my way to kind of accelerate my career and then kind of, you know, leverage the internet for what it's good for and kind of wrote it the rest of the way. And, uh, you know, started working towards prefab and, and BIM and all the other stuff that, you know, I guess I posted about on LinkedIn. Wow, very cool, man. So are you still are you still active in the the drone space? So yeah, I so in 2016, we there's a, a friend, two of us. One guy was a GE aerospace engineer, and was located in Cincinnati, where GE has a huge aerospace presence. And then one was a NASA engineer, 
we started building drones. The company still exists. There's a lot of actually there's a lot of contracts. I'm not as involved with it since I don't live in Ohio anymore, but I'm still kind of involved from a behind the scenes standpoint, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we've definitely built a couple of things and there's a couple of partnerships that we've established over the years uh, with that. So I'm still involved, just not as much as I was when I lived in Ohio. Gotcha. Which I guess brings us to prefab, right? That's probably the thing that you're you're best known for. Uh, obviously, you know, <laughs> your breadth of knowledge and experience is far past that, but prefab is probably the the big thing and the thing that you spend a lot of your time doing. So prefab uh, for and pre-con have a lot of definitions by a lot of people. Uh, so if you want to give us your definition of prefab, pre-con, and uh, kind of how you what your take on it is. So prefab to me is taking anything that's get built on site and building it not on that site and then shipping it there through some method. That's what I, I mean, there's all the name people come like, like we talked about earlier, like there's names for everything, DFMA and prefab and modular and, and people just need an acronym so they can market it. It's all the same crap to me. I mean, people debate. I'm not an English major, so I'm not going to debate the words. <laughs> Works for us. So, yeah, I mean, prefab is, I mean, I'm only, I mean, I'm only good with one trade. I mean, I've only do drywall and framing. I'm involved with other people doing prefab and other trades just through coordination processes and stuff like that. And a few multi-trade things here and there, but I've never, and I've, I mean, I've toured other, other trades shops, but I've never fully delved into their work. So I'm pretty focused on one specific trade, which is framing more specifically metal studs. I have detailed wood models in the past, but I'm just not as familiar with it and, uh, and drywall. And so this is the, Oh, go ahead, Matt. No, you're up, man. You're good. So taken from there, um, and really going a little deeper on the, the prefab side of things and the, the tech side, since this is your, your big area of expertise is, you know, what do you, what do you see coming? What's, what's in existence today um, on the prefab side? And uh, I guess you could talk about BIM as a, as a whole, which I know there's, that's a whole can of worms, uh, which we can open. I'm fine to go there too. Yeah. So I think you can certainly do prefab without BIM. I don't think it's necessarily a requirement. I think it's definitely helpful, but there are certain things I think you can prefab without it. Um, and then I think there are certain things, I mean, I think you can even prefab panels without it. You don't technically need it. I just think it's a lot easier to do, especially with coordination. And one of the things that I didn't know when I first started prefab that I kind of learned just through experience later on is uh, like now, I mean, now we're getting to the point where like the entire job is being ran through the shop, like every, every piece of it almost. And so that's a lot of responsibility that I didn't really understand when I first started. Like I'm making all the, de- not all, but I'm making most of the decisions at the end of the day around how a job's gonna go. But this can either go really well or it can really suck. <laughs> because I mean, I'm setting, like I'm I'm dictating stud layout. So guys hanging drywall, they're kind of like, it's either gonna be a really good drywall hanging experience or they're gonna hate their life for the next two or three weeks while they hang that job. So there's a lot of those decisions that get made. And by myself, in not necessarily in a silo. I mean, I'm involved with other people, but at the end of the day, they're going to be like, who the hell drew this or who designed this? And that's my ass. If it's messed up, that's one of the things I didn't really understand when I first started prefab was like, you're taking on a lot of, it's a lot of responsibility. I mean, you can really sink a job quickly by messing it up. So, and it's hard to do because you don't have a lot of experience. Uh, if that makes sense. I mean, over the course of time, I definitely have built a wealth of checklist of like, this is everything I've seen, I've messed up, or just have come across. And I, it's a checklist I'll go through on every project and make sure, like, not everything might apply, but it's something I want to make sure that we've all thought about and agreed that is either an issue that we need to be addressed or is not an issue. And so, like, when it comes to BIM, I mean, I'll go over the top with BIM. We have a job in Alabama where I'm the only one modeling. GC's not doing coordination. And I model the steel guy's stuff because... I'm not sending out stuff that's not going to fit or it's not going to be right. I even modeled some ducks to show the GC, like, you got to drop this. The ceilings aren't going to fit where the architect and interior designer have them. It's not my responsibility, but again, at the end of the day, if we're going to send out our entire package prefabbed, it's got to be right. 
it can't be wrong. So that's one of the things I really didn't understand first starting. Um, and the best way I gained is, like I said, I didn't come up with the field as I just spent an extensive period of time in the shop. Like with, I had a great, at the last place I worked in Cleveland, OCP, there was a great foreman named Matt. I saw his phone number. We still talk pretty often. And he taught me like, everything I know about carpentry. We would, you know, we would, I would stand in the shop with him and ask questions and he would answer. I, I mean, I still talk to him on the phone sometimes. So I come up with stupid ideas. And I, I always talk to him because he's always at least open and wants to do his, he wanted to do his job better and I want to do mine better. So we made a great team. And I really, I really enjoyed working with that guy a lot. <laughs> I really did. So as far as that's, I guess, in, in the prefab, the piece and I think using BIM to its fullest capability. Um, no, I think we shortcut it a lot. You know, we try and make everything easier. We take shortcuts that kind of defeat the purpose. Like, or people don't use, I don't know. It's kind of a, a touchy subject with people, but it's a tool at the end of the day. And there's a lot of information that's in there and we can drive a lot of processes, you know, from it essentially. So one of the biggest things I'm, I'm figuring out right now is kind of how to, uh, it's still really early. It'll probably take me to the end of the year ish to have some valuable data. But one is building dashboards for our PMs out of the model. And then two is kind of productizing our panels in a way so I can uh, streamline some processes in terms of one cost and estimating, two detailing, and then three driving a few more robotic processes in the shop. So we have a stud, we have stud rolling equipment. And so that part's taken care of of like manufacturing the studs on site. You know, we're buying master coils, you know, the big 40,000 pound coils you see on the highway, and then they get slit down to a slit width. And the slit width varies depending on the size of the stud. Like I would see a three and five stud, a smaller slit width than like a, a six inch stud. Um, so if you take a stud and flatten it all the way out, take the lips, take the flanges, flatten everything out, that's your slit width essentially. There's obviously elongation in there. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship. Mm -hmm. um so but now the process the problem is everything after you know manufacturing the studs is slow because no one no process after can keep up with the machine so it's like well how, how do we start getting everything else like start to speed up the subsequent steps and uh how do we start to add in other trades i mean i'm going to start i want to start adding other trades in our walls whether they're going to do it or not i mean that's essential with constructions it's kind of going back to every one one or two major players versus 50,000 other players. And one of the things in the Southeast that's different from Ohio, my main experience in the Midwest was Ohio was heavy union. Like it was all, all I ever knew was union work. Down here in the Southeast, it's not like that. There's like subs and subs and subs and subs of subs and subs. And it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And so, especially with jobs getting as complicated as they are, and you have all this scoping broken out across multiple people, it becomes very hard to, you know, manage all of that information. It's a lot easier to go to one guy or two companies and say, like, figure this out versus like, you know, this this trade stops here and then he comes in here and then this connects to that and this laps over that. And we got to make sure there's not compatibility issues here and it becomes pretty confusing to, to think about. So I think prefab gives you the ability to kind of set yourself apart because everybody's doing it essentially at this point. And then you can start to add in other trades um, and kind of gain more work for yourself because that's kind of what it's going towards. You know, you see more and more GCs performing trades and more and more single trade contractors performing multiple trades just because everything's getting compressed and the middle is getting squeezed out of pretty much everything. So in your shop, so you're rolling out studs with the machine, obviously, and then are you – or, or your guys there, are they assembling by manpower? Or do you have machines doing that? Or how does that process look? So right now it is with manpower. Okay. I do have a few. This is one of the things I started researching this week, and I won't talk about it yet. Maybe we have a follow-up show like later in the year once I figure some things out. Yeah. There are a few things that I have. It goes back to the product conversation of that will help us with some more machines in the shop. Um, as far as uh, you know, assembling the panels and then sheathing them and doing that kind of stuff. Some of the things I'm just trying to think through is a lot of the robots that exist today, and they're, I mean, there's some that are phenomenal, but they're just taking human-held devices and putting them on like a robot arm. 
which I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily the best answer. I mean, I'm not trying to knock anybody. It's, it's a lot of work to figure out how to you know get robotics to work. But at the end of the day, I mean, drywall is drywall because it's four by eight. And if you gave me a sheet that's like five feet wide, I don't think I can hold it. So is it necessarily, like, there's a lot of things I think, and I learned this through grad school was we 3D printed concrete, which is a lot harder in person than it is on YouTube. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> 3D printed concrete is hard. But what I learned, what I, that then my thesis basically concluded on was like, are we really solving the right problem? Are we solving the right problem? Concrete's been around for, I don't know, 2000 years in some form or fashion. Hasn't changed drastically much. Yeah, we've got admixtures and our chemical engineering is definitely a lot better than what like the Romans had, but a majority of its weight is still the same water, sand, and aggregate of some kind. We just had, came up with, you know, figured out the chemical reactions a little bit, added admixtures to, you know, make it cure faster or slower, or, you know, whatever we needed it to do. But it's still essentially at the end of the day the same. Whereas 3D printing, I mean, if you go back, I think we're starting the 70s ish was the first like, quote unquote 3D printer. Not that oh. it is not that 3D printing in the 70s is, is what it is today, but it's still relatively new. And so we're taking a very old technology, concrete, and trying to put it in a 3D printer. Really what all we want is we want the performance of concrete, not necessarily concrete itself. You want something that just has really good compressive strength and maybe something that's better in tension because concrete sucks in tension. And, you know, that's why you have rebar and you know, it's kind of like taking a, a modern engine, like take an engine out of a Porsche and put it in a Model T. You're going to, the axles are going to fall off. The wheels will probably fall off. Nothing's going to be able to handle the power. So it's the same, I mean, it's the same kind of concept. Why are we taking concrete? It's been around for 2000 years, trying to run it through modern technology. All you want is the performance. If I told you spinning on your head and spitting quarters was going to give you a compressive strength of 10,000 PSI, then that's what you did. You didn't care how we got there. That's just the result you want. So, as far as the tech goes, I think, you know, comes the prefab. Uh, why are we taking tools designed for humans or things that are designed for humans and just using them with robots? There's, we can gain a lot more efficiency by just removing some of the limitations that humans just have because, you know, we don't have, all of us don't have eight foot wingspan. <laughs> I like it. And we'll, we will definitely follow up with you uh, in a few months or towards the end of the year because I want to hear more about that. No, I'll, I'm sure I'll post videos once I figure things out. All right. I got to keep <laughs> figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, which which that begs a, a really good question in that when you when you start to do these processes where a person necessarily doesn't have to be involved or is involved in like operating a crane or <laughs> driving the semi, right? Now your dimension with or uh, limitations are are that, right, of a something go down the highway. So now you're looking at 10, 15 feet wide by 50 <laughs> plus feet long to set in place. You know, what, what can you do at that point? Then you got to worry about lifts and other things like that, right? You're not going to lift this single, you know, 10 by 50 sheet of drywall without it busting somewhere. Um, you know, so those are the, the limitations that you end up with, which creates a whole different set of problems uh, to solve for, but your, your limitation now isn't the person it's, you know, the, <laughs> all the other equipment that you're using to set it in place. Well, I mean, to your point, like one of the things that I mentioned to one of our PMs was, um, the, the biggest issue now with everyone doing prefab is buck hoist and cranes. I mean, with everyone prefabbing, you know, buck hoist time is like, uh, it's worth gold because everybody's trying to get crap onto the floor from their shop and it's multiple trades. I mean, everyone's trying to get crap. When we had, when I did that hospital job in Akron, I mean, the, you know, the mechanical contractor would show up like well into the early hours of the morning, just so he could, A, get access to the buck hoist and B, he could just start, you know, cause he can only fit so much duct on a buck hoist, and especially in a hospital when the duct is like huge, like mission impossible type duct where you can crawl through it. You know, you can yeah. only fit like four or five pieces on the thing plus the operator. And especially, you know, you got travel time going up to the floor and that job was a six story. You know, some of the jobs we're doing in Atlanta are 30 stories. I mean, you're really looking at a lot of time of like, you know, crane time becomes a pricey or very valuable. And so does buck hoist time. And with everybody prefabbing, those are like the two pinch points for everybody. And so we need to come up with better ways to get stuff onto the floors or into the building with everybody building things off site. 
those are two limitations that we just, you know, currently have that prefab has created that I don't think anybody's necessarily solved yet because you only put on one buck hoist. It's not, you can't just like put a, a bunch of buck hoists on because now you got a bunch of holes in the building. You got to repatch. Right. It's the same with putting in mass climbers or some other like, you know, up and movable scaffolding. And we use mass climbers as a crane, quote unquote, you know, we put like stuff on them and then like dry the mass climber up, but it's slow. And then now you got to go repatch all those holes in the building, which are now possible, you know, water penetrations in the future because you left giant holes in the building so you can tie the mass climber off too. So yeah, prefab opened up a whole nother set of problems, I guess, for it to be figured out because yeah, people are having to show up at, you know, early hours in the morning or stay late or coming on weekends to load floors. That's getting written to like a lot of more contracts of like, you know, you can only look, we can only do, you know, loading, run loading during these hours or during these times or during these days, or you have to sign up for it or, you know, whatever the, the GC dictates for that project or owner. Yeah. And one of the, so one of the questions that we got here was about field conditions and prefab. And I think some of this goes to, you know, BIM as well as like laser scanning, right. To where you can, you can go through and you can scan. There's a bunch of laser scanners out there where you can scan a, a building, you know, super accurate, um, use total stations throughout to, to do your pinpoint accuracy and survey within the buildings um, to get those existing additions to then be able to prefab uh, some stuff. But I guess how, how have you approached some of the field conditions or do you prefab only on like new projects versus, you know, remodels so i haven't prefab on renovate let's see the last renovation i, I haven't done any renovations in atlanta i did a, quite a few in cleveland just because the city i think is much older than atlanta relatively speaking in terms of infrastructure and we did not do a whole lot of prefab on renovations there are probably multiple reasons one we just had new construction going on so it's easier to prefab so we just focused on that um you can do laser scanning. You can also, there's certain like, you can do like telescoping studs. Like there's certain like things that you can get, kind of get around it. One of the things that prefab teaches you is it teaches you how to get really creative with tolerances or like creating tolerances for yourself that may or may not be there. So, you know, we might use slotted track in cases or a deeper leg track to allow us to, you know, uh, slide the track up or down to you know account for floor issues or ceiling issues, depending on what we're doing. Or we might use angles, pieces of angle, maybe with a longer leg than what we normally would to give us issues of, you know, again, tolerance if we're making brackets or stuff like that. Um, and then in some cases, it's, I mean, it's just not necessarily worth it to, to prefab an existing project because you have to think about the other issue is if it's an existing building, whatever you're prefabbing, you still have to get to that spot. On new construction, it's a little bit easier because it's typically more open of an area. Your, your constraints are not as great in terms of logistics as the project goes on the building gets more and more closed up and prefab becomes not necessarily impossible it just becomes sometimes more difficult to get stuff onto the floor you either have to break into smaller pieces or you know come up with different ways of doing it per se to get it there like prefab in and of itself isn't hard when I mean, you're taking you know instead of building this jig on site you're building it in a shop the part that gets a little bit hard um, hard might not be the right word, but that gets you in trouble is all the logistical pieces of how to get it on the floor. And I say logistical, I mean like every single step of how you're going to get it from here to there. Because when we did stuff like, I mean, we just, you just do stuff and you just mess it up. Now you know what not to do. Like we did tops for a two story or two building apartments in downtown Cleveland one time. And we pre ripped these tops and we stacked the pallets too heavy to where like they exceeded the you know load limitations provided by a structural engineer for that floor so the guys in the field had to break down these pallets into smaller pallets so they could get them up onto the floor just stuff like that like you know how are you going to get there is it going to be a cart you know what turning radiuses do you have what doors are you trying to go through how big is the buck hoist how big is the trailer you using a lull using a crane how are you going to pick it and all that just all that stuff comes into play and again either make a checklist of what to look for or you end up messing it up once you're two times get a few calls of hey what the f and then because <laughs> i definitely got a few of those phone calls <laughs> i think so we all have. 
I think that brings up a good question too, is, you know, construction is, is everything, right? Like you, you, so one of the things is like productivity, right? And comparing it to manufacturing, I like comparing it to cars because that's probably the, the most straightforward everybody understands. But in, you know, a car, right, it's manufactured in one place and then it's shipped to a dealer, right? And we've got highways and everything in a car trailer, car semi, right, that these go on where construction, right, it's some of this is prefab, right, from a shop to the, the job site, but everything is built there. So when you look at all of this, it's how do you get material or whatever from this place to here? And then you start talking and getting all the trades involved to coordinate all of those pieces. Construction is as much of a logistics problem, which you typically, when you take a logistics class or talk logistics, it's, you know, I want to ship this thing from, from where I am to you right in Atlanta. So how do I get from California to Atlanta is usually the, the problem, not how do I get out of my house, take the steps down, you know, go to the distribution facility, take a plane or train or bus or an automobile or something, <laughs> drive all the way to Atlanta or fly or whatever, get out of there. And then the last mile delivery, which is the problem that like everybody has uh, from Amazon all the way up or down, however you want to look at that uh, pyramid, but in last mile, right, to get it to your actual doorstep is the the problem and then you take it for for construction it's from the from the front door to the 12th floor in the back hallway and there's only you know stairs for the last two floors to get to the the place we don't always think of <laughs> those last logistical uh steps in there so you you'd have a better education in logistics doing construction than i think most people with a logistics degree no the funny thing you bring up with amazon logistics was one time as a joke <laughs> One time as a joke, we were going to make an online like Amazon store. We were going to like sell our prefab assemblies back to ourselves for like a dollar. So that way Amazon had to deal with shipping it. <laughs> I would love to see that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I don't know what we were doing. Oh, I think we were doing like one of the crazy ideas we had was like, oh, we were going to build concrete countertops for a project. And like, they were such a pain to work with. And I think that's what we were, they were so heavy. We didn't want to deal with it. And they were so fragile. That we were gonna like that's what we were gonna do. We we're gonna put them on Amazon for a dollar, let the PM buy them, and then let Amazon figure out how to ship them to the, the job. <laughs> yeah, and they cover insurance and shipping and all those <laughs> abilities. <laughs> and returns. <laughs> and there were no returns. I uh, uh so this is funny. I uh at one point we were doing I, I did an arc flash and electrical safety for a big chunk of my career. So we got to go into all sorts of different facilities, but one of them was a uh, like off brand. You you never know the name of the company, but they they solely took uh, Walmart returns. That was the only thing these warehouses did, and they were in the Southwest, so we we're in like South Carolina. But people get creative, man. They'll they'll stuff a TV box full of bricks so that the weight is exactly the same because people aren't opening the boxes, but Damn. they'll weigh them. Uh, so the weight was like to the you know, 10th of an ounce. So they put them on the scale and it, it weighs out and it, you know, fills to where like nothing moved in it, but the weight was the same to, to move through. So when you're talking about weight and shipping stuff, uh, people get creative when they try to rip off Walmart. Might have to get a new career. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you on personal experience, my wife and I had this idea a few years back that we were going to buy that shit. You can, you can find the, the companies that, all the Amazon returns go to a certain warehouse. Well, and these guys will then put it on pallets and they'll sell it for next to nothing. And so we had this great idea that we're going to, you know, you can see the, the bill ladings for what's on your pallet and you pay a thousand bucks or whatever. And I come home from work one day and there's this, there's this freaking pallet in the driveway and we start tearing through it and it's just junk. I mean, it's, it's, like 3000 iPhone cords that are all missing the plugins, you know, and just, just boxes of crap. We didn't get boxes of bricks, but it might as well have been, it, it was a, a learning experience, but I'll chalk it up to keeping me humble. Also, we didn't get rich off it. <laughs> Thousand bucks and a bunch of time wasted. Yes. And a pallet of junk. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, James, before we have any more questions, if, uh, if there's somebody in our audience, which I would, I would doubt, but where, where can they find you? LinkedIn probably. I mean, I have, 
a Facebook, but it's only for like one or two groups. And I have an Instagram, but I delete it and I only install it to say something and then I delete it again. <laughs> I only, and now I only talk if I have something of value to add. I'm not just posting just to post. And I try and stay off social media because it's just not very good. I don't like it. <clears throat> I liked it. It's a tool at the end of the day, right? I mean, it got me to where I am. I ended up in Georgia because of it, ironically, of all things. So I think it's definitely a tool. That's one of the biggest things I'm kind of distressed to people. It's just a tool. I learned BIM off of the internet and just by doing it and messing it up. So like the first projects I did in Revit were terrible. I mean, God awful. And then each project you do, you learn a couple of new things and uh, you just kind of make tweaks and you keep improving it and you keep improving it and you keep improving it and getting better. But the first, I mean, I did not, I learned Revit on the job and I worked as a structural engineer. So we were doing, went back to the co-op thing. When I was a co-op, I was working for an engineering firm at the time, Osborne Engineering. They were kind of going through, it was like 2014 or 2015, and they were going through that AutoCAD Revit transition phase. So like one of my jobs as an intern was to convert or work with some of the other engineers and detailers on converting a lot of the CAD details into like Revit families because they were kind of going through that transition process. And that's when I first got experience to Revit. And the rest was just YouTube and Google and forums and videos and watching and learning. And there's a lot, I mean, I have a job where I learned it all off the internet per se. I mean, definitely the engineering degree, I'm not gonna say it doesn't come into handy. I mean, yeah, it helps to design load bearing structures when you understand you know, some fundamentals of structural engineering. I, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't useful. But I mean, the tools I'm in most of the day aren't necessarily things I learned through college. And LinkedIn's the same way, I mean, it's a tool. I started posting videos in my bedroom at my parents' house with bunk beds in the background that people always gave me crap about, like, which one does he sleep in? The top one or the bottom one? <laughs> and I was wearing a hoodie, and they weren't professional by any means. They definitely weren't scripted, and they definitely weren't edited. I mean, I would just, I would see, what I started doing is I would see something on job site, and then I would try and come up with some hacked together quasi-solution, a step above saying I have an idea, it was something somewhat tangible, and then I would just film it, and I would say, like, this is how it could work, or it should work, or this or that, or I would tell stories of, you know, there's things you saw on the job site. And, you know, that's kind of how I started using LinkedIn. That's kind of how it grew from there. That's how I ended up in Georgia. So ironically, I worked for a startup last year when COVID first started in, in Atlanta, just on the north uh, northeast side in uh, at Alpharetta. So I was working for them at the time and COVID started, you know, when the stock market first collapsed around this time last year. It was in February and they laid everybody off because they were private equity backed. I was like, oh crap. Like at the time I already, uh, you know, left the employer in Ohio. I didn't have a lease yet in Georgia, but I, I already it was like the week before I was supposed to move. They like laid everybody off. And I, I really like Georgia. Like I, I've been to the South before for family vacations, but when I tell people like when you come to the South and it's the winter in the Midwest, and like you leave Cleveland and it's snowing. I live right off Lake Erie. So like we got crapped on with snow and you know, it's snowing, everything's gray. It's covered in salt. And then you come to the South and you're wearing shorts and it's 50 and it's sunny and everything's clean. That's two different things. Like, yeah. When you come to the South in the summer and it's summer in the Midwest, it's like, Oh, it's just hotter, more humid version of summer. But when you come to the South in the winter and it's clean and there's not salt all over everything and there's no snow and like, this is, this is kind of nice. And so I knew the company I work for now, Jackie, the president, I spoke with her through LinkedIn. She messaged me. She's like, we're trying to do prefab. We have some questions. Would you mind talking to us? And I talked to her on the phone for like, you know, one November in like 2019. And then I reached out to her like four or five months later saying like, hey, like I'm, <laughs> I'd like to come to Georgia and I don't have a job. And then it's kind of how it ended up. So I mean, that's just the power of LinkedIn, I think, you know, putting stuff out there that provides value. Yeah, to answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll get man. Uh, yeah. So, guys, obviously, James is tagged in, in all the groups here and all the posts. So, go uh, go follow him. Great videos that you put out, man. Uh, they're always thought-provoking and, and all that kind of good stuff. So, and, you know, I know uh, all of our mutual friends, or really one mutual friend who you <laughs> help out quite a bit, um, you know, speaks highly of you and, um, you know, other people, man, it's, uh, we're, we're glad to have you on here. Um, definitely from the conversations we've had, you know, you know what you're talking about, you're, you know, 
exuding all the the core values that that Matt and I both stand for, and uh, you know, do the right thing, stand up for construction, um, you know, and, and constantly improving yourself, which you know I've seen from obviously a distance, but uh, you know, it's it's something that we love to see, and we love to to talk to people that that are all about improving themselves and getting better, um, you know, in everything that you do. So definitely a pleasure to to have you on and. Uh, I love how you've uh, used LinkedIn for for that type of uh, use. I appreciate it. It means a lot. I think going back to our point about conversation of like earlier with college versus the trades or whatever, just pick something and then just work to get better at it. Like at the end of the day, like just it's not necessarily what you do that's going to make you successful. It's just how you do it. And I mean, I think one of the one of the things I don't like about the trade versus college conversations, people always like to talk about you know, how much money you can make. Like you can make a lot of money doing anything because, you know, like you got, even if you get drafted to the NFL, let's go back to the Tom Brady example. You get drafted to the NFL, maybe you're in for a year and you make, I don't know what the, what they actually make. I get the marketing of like what ESPN says, like, oh, they can make $200 million if like Neil Armstrong lands on the moon and they throw 50 touchdowns in the same game. And that's the marketing. That's what they tell you on TV. Like that's five hundred is probably the low guy, I think, from what I've seen. So if you're like fifty second on the roster, you're making half to a mil, something like that, a year, and you might have a one to two year contract. So right. the low end, it's you're making half a million. Exactly. So like if you're and if you don't stay around, like you got in the NFL for one year and now you're out. And it's not even if you were the best pick or highest pick. And look at I mean, like like Tom Brady, the guys it's not necessarily where you got what you do. It's just how, how you do it, how you perform. And you can make good money doing anything if you're good at it or work to get better at it. So I think that's one of the, one of the points I don't like about the trade conversation is like, if you're a sucky plumber and you create leaky pipes, you're not going to get paid a lot of money just because you're a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's kind of a dumb conversation to have. Like I get it. I understand where you're coming from. Like, yeah, you can make good money without going into debt, but, I mean, if you're a really good doctor, then you're probably going to pay that debt off pretty quick. You know, yeah. or go to a different school that you don't have to pay six figures for or live on a dorm or some crazy crap. It's yep. just working hard no matter what you're doing. You got to put the effort in. You got to put the time in. Yeah. I, I agree with you 100%, man. <laughs> it, it's cool to follow your journey. You, you've come a long way from the uh, the bunk bed studio, and <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and telling us the story. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I'll forgive you for rooting for the team up north. <laughs> I don't want to date myself, but I may have been at Michigan when Mr. Brady was there. Were you? I was. I, I didn't hang out with him, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, so to, in all honesty and transparency, so my wife went to Michigan, uh, but I went, I went to Louisville. But So we win championships. We don't blow them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of championships, we had some issues with our uh, – when we first got our stud rolling machines, there were just some issues. There's like, a lot of things you just don't know about when you're trying to manufacture studs. And, like, we finally got to the point where we were doing production. And then, like, David, who's the owner, was like, you know, stud rolling and production, those are two words you never hear together. And I was like, it's kind of like Georgia and national titles. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that went over real well. Yeah, they're obviously from the south. and. College football is very big here. There's not, it's very rare to find a car that does not have some college sticker or bumper on it of some kind. And there's schools from all over the place. I got my house day one. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. One of my uh, buddies that I, I worked with, he went to grad school at Louisiana Lafayette and you'd go to, to games down there and you know, it's, it's the South and especially it's Louisiana. So, you know, you'd have a 41 court thing, a uh, gumbo, right for all the tailgates and he was like people would yell at you if you're wearing the other team's gear to like the the game right if you're going to a Louisiana state game there's like some bama fan right or coming through and they they would berate you and yell at you and then be like hey man you want some gumbo <laughs> <laughs> so it was like that kind of like you know cursing at you to your face but then hey i got i can't eat all this like you want some gumbo was pretty good man i like that stuff I, I think the uh, the Wolverine Buckeye relationship is not quite as uh, cordial. No, we put a. Speaking of plumbers, <clears throat> when we my uncle built a man cave, and before we filled like the toilet with you know, hooked up to the you know water, 
you put the Michigan decal on the bottom of it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's my last note for the day on that one. <laughs> no, that's good. We won't burn any couches today. So, uh, no, James, it's, it's been a real pleasure having you on, man. I know there's there's tons of nuggets that people picked up in this show on, you know, anything from prefab to problems to, you know, you can make it in whatever you try. And I think that's really the biggest message that we always put out is, look, you can make it in whatever you want, right? Matt is on the GC side. James, you're on a sub side. I'm from the design side, right? You can all make it in whatever you choose, as long as you choose to be great. Uh, and I think that's the biggest message here to, to pass along. And then there's, you know, everything else to, to figure out. There's, there's definitely problems in construction, but there's, there's always a solution if you, uh, if you look hard enough. 100%. And with that, guys, that is this episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. Until next time.